Hey guys, Mary Weller here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Truth Exchange podcast. Before we start, I wanted to say one thing about this episode. I mention a book in this episode called Embodied by Preston Sprinkle. What I didn't mention is that I am reading this book to critique it. As I've read, I've become concerned about many of Preston Sprinkle's conclusions, and it is not a book that I personally could recommend in good conscience. I didn't make that clear in the conversation during our recording, and I wanted to make that clear now. Thanks so much. Lord bless you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is the Truth Exchange Podcast, the unique podcast that does cultural apologetics all through the lens of Romans 1.25. We have exchanged the truth of God for the lie, worship and serve creation rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. I'm your host, Joshua Gilo, and Mary Weller is here with me in the studio, as well as Dr. Peter Jones. And we're going to be going over a book review that Dr. Jones has written. The book that he reviewed is Still Time to Care. What We Can Learn from the Church's Failed Attempt to Cure Homosexuality. This book is by Pastor Greg Johnson of PCA Memorial Church in St. Louis, Missouri. Part of the intro of the book says, With warmth and humor, as well as original research, Still Time to Care will chart the path forward for our churches and ministries in providing care. It will provide guidance for the gay person who hears the gospel and finds themselves smitten By the life-giving call of Jesus. Woven throughout the book will be Richard Lovelace's 1978 call for a double repentance in which gay Christians repent of their homosexual sins and the church repents of its homophobia, putting on display for all the power of the gospel. Dr. Jones, you have carefully and I think charitably written a very long but very powerful observation of this book and if you were to print it out it's some 20 plus pages and in it you begin with an encouragement to Greg and you speak highly of him that Greg Johnson is an intelligent Christian thinker who seeks to make a valid case for allowing someone who like himself is openly same-sex attracted gay and celibate to an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. You later on say that Johnson maintains the biblical teaching on sexuality as the basis for his commitment to celibacy. Overall, with that massive book, how would, how would you rate it? Is it something that, that pastors should, should read because it's a, an encouragement for the church? Or it's something to make Christians aware of some of these issues? Or is there something more well, nefarious lurking underneath? <laughs> well, obviously... Since he's a pastor of the PCA, all the pastors of the PCA should read it, I think, to be aware of the issue he raises. And it is a valid issue. I mean, people are tempted into homosexuality, and some people don't seem to be able to explain why or to explain or to be able to emerge from it. And we must be aware of those difficulties. So I think that on a personal level, we owe it to Greg Johnson to express our concern for his situation. We need to thank him for being clear in his thinking and of being as faithful a Christian as he can be as a same-sex attracted 
human being by adopting very self-consciously the whole challenge of celibacy, that is, of never engaging in same-sex sex. Um, so I, I just think that this is an important book because while we've been watching how homosexuality has risen to a major emphasis in secular culture, that we now find it present in our Presbyterian churches that claim to be orthodox. And how should we deal with these issues? I think Greg Johnson's book is a good beginning point for us as members and pastors in the PCA to think about this subject. Hmm. And later on, you point out some of the, the pitfalls, and we will certainly we go into that. Mary, you have not read the book, but you have read Peter's reviews. Did you have any thoughts or immediate questions that came to mind? You have been doing a lot of research on the transgender movement, one for personal reasons, because it's coming knocking on the door of your children's school through public policy. And also, you are going to be dealing with this issue at our upcoming online symposium, uh, Stolen Identity. And so I'm curious, I'd love to hear your thoughts uh, just from what you have read and then anything you might want to share, just uh, how that might interweave in some way. Well, what I appreciated so much at the outset, Dr. Jones, of your review is the same thing that Joshua just mentioned, and that is the the respect and kind of the pastoral tenderness with which you approach Greg Johnson. I think for you and me, Joshua, you know, we exist in the land of social media. So often we see so much communicated without that respect, um, without trying to see with those who profess to be our brothers and sisters, I think some of the the genuine compassion and concern that they have for brothers and sisters who do struggle with same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria. And uh, so the tone of what I've read of Greg Johnson's, though you're right, I haven't read the book, and the response that Peter had is very similar to one that I'm having to um, a book called Embodied, and that's dealing specifically with transgenderism. But in that book, uh, the pastor whose last name is Sprinkle has a very similar heartache, like a real desire to, to see this community helped. And so I, I think we need to acknowledge that that is good, that we want to reach out to, to all people and see them changed by the gospel. But what came out in this review that surprised me that I hadn't realized about Greg Johnson is Peter, you showed in some of the quotes from the book that he doesn't believe that people who are same sex attracted can change that he disagrees with any kind of therapy, apparently um, that would try to help people change their disordered sexual desires, that he doesn't think that that's even possible. And immediately I thought of people like our dear Rosaria Butterfield and people who've spoken at our conferences, uh, Nate Oilo, um, Stephen Black, uh, men and women who have beautiful testimonies of being drawn out of not just the lifestyles that they were in, but having a Holy Spirit experience of changed desire. So that it seems like the, the whole power, the whole transformative power of the gospel 
seems unavailable to Greg Johnson and Peter, you having read the book and Joshua, you have too. Am I correct that that's his stance? Here's what he says. He makes a post. Well, I'm citing myself here. (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) He makes a postmodern postmortem judgment, concluding that hope, that was his phrase, postmortem judgment, concluding that his hope for sexual change is now dead. And that the sexualized pull towards people of the same sex is not likely to go away. So he sort of knows, I mean, he struggled with it all his life, I agree, but he seems to know that it'll never go away. So I don't know how he knows that. He says, we bid farewell to the ex-gay movement, namely people who think you can be gay and then become ex-gay. You say goodbye to that very idea. What springs to my mind is Paul in Romans 7, who, you know, oh, wretched man that I am, who, who does have sin clearly that he is struggling against, but the struggle is still there. Right. And it sounds a little bit to me that this, the struggle has been removed in some way and that he's trying to, Greg Johnson is trying to reconcile in some way existing with this and that, that these desires, as long as he doesn't act out on them, then they aren't sinful. Yeah. I, one of the things that he says that struck me as strange, he says, I never hug or do any of those things with a fellow male friend, but he does confess to having spent many years in pornography. Mm-hmm. So he wants to present himself as a virgin, and yet he does admit that he spent much time in pornography, which obviously can deeply affect the way your mind goes. And I hope he's liberated from that, but we don't know. He doesn't speak about that anymore, except by mentioning it. So his relationship to homosexuality as something he cannot solve seems to go in direct opposition to the Bible text I cite in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Let me read it, you two. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That seems to be Paul stating that there does come a moment in a Christian's life where the sins that they've committed in the past are deeply changed, and you can be deeply changed. So that let's take let's take a, a PCA pastor who grew up as a young man with great amount of heterosexual lust. Mm-hmm. If that pastor continues to have heterosexual lust, even though he never 
engages in any kind of physical expression of that, is Paul saying that that's okay? Or is he saying that we should expect to be freed from that? So this is a difficult text for uh, Greg Johnson, I think. He says that Paul is simply promising to not engage in sexual sexuality, that, that that's enough for him to show that he's been deeply changed by the work of Christ. And yet in Romans 1, Paul talks about how once we begin to worship the creation rather than the creator, he doesn't talk about just homosexual acts. He also talks about men being overcome with desire for men. Right. And so that, that disordered desire is an issue, according to Paul, Good. not just the act, it seems. Am I? No, right. I think that's an excellent point. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't deal with. No. Well, one of the things in your review is you point to you address the deep principles of holiness and creation. And I'd like you to explain what that means. And, but before you do, I was just going to read a, a piece from Greg's book. He writes, it seems to me that the, the polygamy of heterosexual desire, or more technically a polyamory or polyeroticism is also disordered. Heterosexuality as experienced this side of the fall is drenched in sin. Heterosexuality as experienced on this side of the fall is also a fallen orientation on account of its failure to remain exclusive to one's spouse at the attractional level. And he says, you know, we don't need a bunch of X straight ministries to help brothers and sisters. And I just think it's a bit of a conflation there because the desire for a man to desire a woman is actually a creational good. And there is a distortion that takes place with lust, but that same sex lust is not on the same playing field here as heterosexual lust. Mm -hmm. That would be a natural segue then to, to bring up Peter's deep principles of holiness in creation. What does that mean, deep holiness in creation? Well, I tried to point out in the review that Holiness means distinction. <laughs> mm. uh, and so the term hetero means other. And the term homo means the same. So you have the phenomenon of sexuality described as either distinction making or same making. And holiness is distinction making. It's doing right things in their rightful place so that the uh, vessels on the table in the tabernacle are holy, but they're not morally holy. They're in their rightful place. Mm -hmm. and that's why they're called holy. God is holy because he is distinct from us. And uh, he is other. And that's why I believe in scripture, otherness in sexuality 
preserves the very notion of otherness in our entire way of living and thinking and doing whatever we do. I also call it binary thinking, making distinctions of uh, one or two. And one is the same and two is two things that are different. So binary thinking is making distinctions. And of course, in the world that we live in now, we see many people talking about getting rid of binary thinking. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, if you do that, you'd have to get rid of computers because they're based on a binary system of one and zero. Mm -hmm. And we cannot function without the binary system. And that's a holy thing. It's a good thing. And so when Greg Johnson speaks about holiness, I'm afraid he doesn't go deeply at all into it. It's much more of a fundamentalistic kind of holiness where you, um, where you don't go deeply into what holiness really means. Holiness is a worldview. It's not simply a few actions where you are pure. And uh, I think he fails to understand as he tries to talk about holiness, which he has to do, the extent, the depth to which we need to take the notion of holiness. Yes, there seems to be a missing recognition here that I have seen other places of the fact that we are born in sin. In other words, um, we are fundamentally, before we're able to commit sin, um, outwardly, we're, we are born dead in our trespasses. Um, and God gives us new hearts and he, he changes our desires. He makes us alive in him. Um, and clearly all of us have temptations towards sin all of us do sin and we must repent. Um, but it seems that there, there's a, a forgotten notion that all of us after the fall, everything in creation was inherently affected by that sin. So that, that seems to be downplayed. That seems to be lost someplace in some of these discussions that, that it's not just about the actions, Peter, as you're saying, but that at our very hearts, all we want is wrong, but by the grace of God and the work of the Holy spirit, that, that keeps striking me as I've, I've read this review and read so much of the, of the stuff that I have in, in all of my research. The other thing, of course, that he goes over very lightly is the fact that there are many people who claim to have been delivered from homosexuality. Right. And he makes a blanket statement that this is a post-mortem event, that it can no longer be the case. But you have people like Joseph Nicol Nicolosi, who was very successful as a counselor to homosexuals. You have his uh, 
friend, I get his name here, um, David Pickup, who was a colleague of his, who in his email says, speaks of daily changes in clients who come to the office and discover their true selves. So, and then of course you have, I don't know whether any of you have seen the uh, movie, Such Were Some of You. Yes. Very impressive, 16 people speaking about spiritual and physical deliverance. my my wife was also up in uh, in the government offices at one point with some folks to try and argue that conversion therapy should not get removed. And uh, she told me about at the California Council, they had testimonies of many who had voluntarily left the LGBT world. Many yeah. testimonies. So, you know, are we going to trust that Greg Johnson's one-off experience, even though there are many homosexuals who claim they cannot get healed, but there are many who do claim that. Mm-hmm. Are we going to trust him to determine what we believe as a denomination, that this is the true side of things and not what we hear from people who talk about being relieved from homosexual temptations. He does seem to go after Exodus as his poster whipping boy. And Exodus I want- International? Yes, thank you. And I, I wonder, Dr. Jones, if, if you had any comment about them that might be helpful in terms of what did they do wrong because I, I have known some people who have who benefited from Exodus, and then when it imploded and and crumbled like it did, what was it? I think some eight years ago or so, maybe more. But some people were scandalized and and saw that as their well. There you go. This whole thing was a sham. It was, it was nothing but snake oil. Yeah. Well, Alan Chambers was the head of that group. And he disbanded it. But then he went into side A thinking. That is to say that gay Christians can actually have sexual relationships and still be pleasing to God. So he moved from the Exodus ministry to a radical commitment to what we call side A thinking. And so you wonder what was happening in Exodus at that point. But there are many groups that still can talk about the change that they have seen in homosexuals. And uh, I just think we have to not forget that as we hear people talking about the death of the ex-gay script. I'm not sure that that is universally true. The other thing that I mentioned in my review is that Alan Chambers, he actually says, yeah, just go ahead. The ex-head of Exodus made this incredible statement. Good and evil is a distraction, a detour. You follow that? A man has to change deeply his thinking to get rid of the binary 
of good and evil and to say it's a mere detour. Yeah. Yeah. And I cite him in my review after having described the worldview that has been proposed for our modern world by June Singer, proposing that the model for the new humanity is androgyny. Mm -hmm. Androgyny is the joining of male and female with no distinction. And therefore, she says, we must forget that there are distinctions. We must build a worldview based on oneism. And then for Alan Chambers to say good and evil are a distraction, a detour, he somehow <laughs> has come under the influence of that kind of thinking, it sounds like to me. Well, and it's interesting that he has to merge good and e evil to, to say that this distinguishing between the two of them is a distraction is required for him to pursue hom his homosexual lifestyle without qualm. He may not be a homosexual, by the way. I'm not sure about that. I know he's oh. married. He may have had homosexual tendencies. I think I remember reading that, but. I will need to look that up. I thought that he was, but, but in order to say that anyone then, yeah. um, you know, can pursue their sexuality and, and that leads to a question. And I know people say that this is like slippery slopeism, but what do we do with people then who have pedof, you know, th their, as the current terms are minor attraction, you know, people who are pederasts and pedophiles and and can't kick that well is the differentiation between good and evil a mere distraction there that's right the implications of this are so huge and what's interesting to me with proponents of side a theology is they never seem to go where you go peter which is to the creational order of everything. And so God gave us a mandate to be fruitful and multiply. He, he creates Adam and then a helper fit for Adam is one who can produce children with him. And so their desire to do what God has called them to do is tied into their desire for each other as male and female. They've been created perfectly for each other. And it's only after the fall that that this all becomes disrupted. And I don't know if I am sure they're out there, but I have not heard a side a proponent who will deal with the creation mandates other than to write them off or to make them irrelevant. But this seems absolutely fundamental foundational to anything else that you're going to say about sexuality and gender. You know, if that foundation is wrong, or, or Harry, this is what you don't get in Greg Johnson's book, a serious explanation of the, of the creation and the male-female image. Mm -hmm. He doesn't deal with it. He keeps speak, speaking about being in love with Jesus, and mm. it's all very emotional. But has he met Jesus as the creator? 
Right. The word who, without whom nothing was made that was made and was made a certain way. So ultimately that's my major critique of Johnson is that he fails to develop an ideology based on biblical notions of distinction of God as Trinity and distinct, the persons from each other, and the male-female image made in God's image. He does not develop that at all. And so he is not bringing to his ministry and to his preaching any kind of worldview analysis, which is both a wonderful celebration of who God is and what how he's created mm-hmm. and a warning of the fall into sin, which is the rejection of God as a creator and the rejection of distinctions, actually. Mm-hmm. And you see, he's missed all that in his book. And I'm just concerned that he fails then to bring a message to in particular, the, the young growing up in mm-hmm. this culture that do not hear an alternate voice from the gay and lesbian voice trying to take over the culture. So what are the far-reaching implications of not just this book for us as Christians, but the Revoice movement, would you say? What, what do people who are listening to this podcast um, and, and hearing about some of this, maybe for the first time, what are they to do and what are they to make of it? What are, what are the implications for Christians? And, and Dr. Jones, could you, and when you answer that, also hone in specifically on, on for ministers of the gospel, if Greg thinks that sexual orientation changing ministries are dead, then where do you where do you put your attention at and do you just embrace the whole lgbtq as good and beautiful and something to be redeemed within the life of the church or and when it comes and knocks on your school door and and ideologies of of transgenderism and changing pronouns are pushed should you not fight anymore you should simply say well we need to welcome this because we need to welcome the youth and you mentioned this about Sarah Collins, the wife of Nate Collins, who's the founder of Revoice. And she described Johnson's approach as a philosophy of ministry that doesn't try to cure people's orientation, but rather care for them as fellow image bearers of God and heirs of grace in Christ. So your question is? Well, what are the implications? How does one do ministry then? That's it's a that is a radical shift in the, the ethos and the practice of, of of how you minister to somebody. Well, it is, and as you indicated, as we see our culture collapsing, as I've indicated too, into the model of androgyny, namely that uh, we're neither male nor female. Johnson doesn't seem to be worried by that. He actually makes the statement that probably same-sex marriage is good for non-Christian homosexuals. So he he actually, in that book, in passing, 
gives a nod to same-sex, the legalization of same-sex marriage. And so that makes you have to wonder what on earth will he say to a culture that becomes totally dominated by the ideology of homosexuality. And all our children, as we try to raise them according to the good news of God the Creator, uh, will be totally attacked and influenced and perhaps even convinced by this pagan ideology of oneist unity of all things. So that's my concern. That's why I wrote the review. And I think that that is the major weakness of Johnson's book, that it fails to develop an apology of biblical ideology and worldview. And so we do not get from him, which would have been good from, from someone who claims to be gay, a uh, clear statement of what gayness means in terms of not worshiping God the creator and the redeemer, by the way. So that's my concern that this book will only help in sort of watching our culture go radically gay. Yeah, I'm thinking of two couples, one homosexual and one heterosexual who get married prior to, or yeah, prior to being Christians. And when you have a heterosexual couple who has gotten married and then comes into the church, your response then is um, to help them in their marriage. But with a homosexual couple, if they were to get married, and so far as we allow that in our culture, I mean, we know on this podcast amongst ourselves that that our ideas of marriage are fundamentally heterosexual, but if they're to have that kind of union and then they come in as a married couple into the church, um, the advice would have to be different, even according to what Greg Johnson's standard is, which would have to be that because he doesn't advocate for homosexual marriage within the church, nor does he advocate for a physical sexual relationship. So there would have to be an undoing of that relationship, it would have to be handled very differently from the heterosexual couple. You know, it's just, there, there are interesting implications in there. And I, how, what do you do with a person who comes to your church? If you are a pastor like Greg Johnson, who believes the way that Greg Johnson does, you have someone who comes to your church, who's living in an active homosexual lifestyle, but is seeking Christ legitimately, what do you tell them? You, you must stop these behaviors and we're, we're going to sign you up now for a life of loneliness or unfulfillment. There's no chance that you will well, be. That's, that's what he would do. He would tell both people that they need, they needed to adopt a life of celibacy. Yeah. That's the solution for gay Christians is a life of celibacy. There's no hope that they could have a married relationship continuing on. So that's that's his answer. 
So it seems surprising to me that he would advocate marriage outside of the church for homosexuals. Well, see, that's because he does not have a reformed uh, worldview understanding of what's happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just so very fundamentalistic in a certain sense. You know, it does them rather than what is what does it mean for God to be the Lord of all, the creator of the world, and for the creation to witness to who God is. Mm-hmm. All of those issues are absent in this book. I I just keep struggling with that call to, to celibacy. One of the things that is very dominant within the revoice and the side B conversation is the loneliness factor. Yes. And the lack of companionship. And I know many people who would probably consider themselves side B. They've not been able to overcome those desires for, for same sex, someone of the same sex, but they have gotten married and are living very happy fulfilled lives and they're not lonely they have children and and like i said it's it's not to say that they don't struggle and and still have to mortify those those sinful desires but i think that to me that seems very cruel to say because the conversion ministries failed and it we should just move past that everyone now needs to be solid I, i just think that's that's not right and in the Westminster Confession, it warns against taking those kinds of vows. Now, now the same-sex person needs to exercise chastity. All Christians exercise that should exercise chastity, but we don't have to take a vow of celibacy unless we are truly gifted with that. Right. Well, I, I may have overstated that. He says that's what he chose, and he does allow for other homosexuals to have a heterosexual marriage, if you like, like Nate Nate uh, Collins mm-hmm. I think is in that kind of a relationship, the founder of Revoice. Yeah, he, well, doesn't, I think of- he doesn't oppose that, but he says the the hopes that they will stay together is pretty slim. Mm. Well. (laughs) You got the choice. You either have companionship or celibacy and loneliness. Yeah, I just, I'm thinking of, um, again, the testimony that Nate Oilo gave at one of our uh, think tanks years back, talking about how, you know, his experience of falling in love with and being attracted to his wife was getting to know her differently. And the Lord did gift him, gift him with that attraction for her. And, um, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the second gentleman who gave a a similar testimony, but both of them have lovely wives. They have children, they have marriages, as you said, they struggle to crucify and mortify their sinful desires, Joshua, um, because they do Nate. I'm not sure, but one of the others does still have a, have same sex desires, but he knows that that's sinful. And, um, 
I think that's what bothered me the most about the quotes that I was reading. And, and like I said, the articles of Greg Johnson's and interviews of Greg Johnson's is it just seems that he doesn't feel the need to struggle against the desire, like the disordered desire doesn't seem to trouble him. It doesn't seem to be an indicator of anything else. Um, and I can't think of another sin where that would apply for any of us as Christians. Well, it's difficult to theorize about people's inner feelings. I, I've never had those feelings myself. And so I don't know how I would deal with them. But, you know, when you go to scripture, as we did 1 Corinthians 6, mm -hmm. there is that hope that these desires will be removed. Now, he claims that they have not been removed, so he has to find out how we can live with them as unchanged. And, you know, you've got to appreciate the difficulty that that represents Sure. But what I don't like is his failure to see the theological issues behind homosexuality, worldview issues, and um, the fact that he cannot preach that important element of our witness to the world. Yeah. And then the other thing which bothers me is he has to become. Uh, he has to become public. Yes. Instead of it being a private thing, and I think privacy is a good thing for our sins. We yes. don't have to wander around telling people everything that we are tempted to do today. Uh, <laughs> Thank heaven. <laughs> Thank heaven. And we should have pastors and friends with whom we can share. Sure. Part of what he wants. He doesn't want that. He wants to be able to be known publicly as a same sex attracted pastor. Yeah. And I, I need to qualify that that's part of the struggle that I have too is that it's not just that he is struggling with these things or not struggling with them. I mean, obviously he's, he's dealing with struggle, but there are certain things that he's advocating as a pastor in a book to the church at large. This is where it becomes an issue to me as well, Peter. I don't. I, I don't want to stray from that compassion that I, I feel for him, but he's advocating it for the church. It's having an effect on the church and how the church handles and speaks about these things. And that makes it more of an issue. In his um, addendum, which is called On Mission with the LGBTQ plus community, he lays the great emphasis upon evangelizing gays. That's the major thing he has to talk about. And I mentioned that, the, that his church sponsors a group of non-Christian transgender people doing plays in his chapel. And he talks in this addendum, as he calls it, about his talking to a transgender person. I don't know whether it was male or female. But he never once speaks about creation mm -hmm. and the fact that transgenderism 
is a fundamental rejection of God the Creator. Mm-hmm. So he really does hold back from making any statements about the biblical view of human life as a normative view. Yeah. And that in and of itself is an unkindness ultimately, because I'm thinking of a couple that was in a home group I was in over a decade ago who, when they came to the group, um, we just all assumed that they were married. Uh, they, they had started coming to the church that I was attending at the time and they were a part of the group. And as we were reading through scripture, it came out that they weren't married. They, they were just living together. And this issue came up, (laughs) um, in study and they were very upset with us because they really didn't, they hadn't known that as Christians, that that was wrong. And they were upset with our group for a little while, because I I remember my friend, um, the now wife of this couple saying, why didn't you guys tell us we were, we were doing this thing that was sinful. Why didn't you tell us, you know? And so they really actively sought to, to pull back in their relationship, to seek counsel. And they ended up getting married, but that's always struck me that she was so upset that she hadn't been told. (laughs) Um, she hadn't been told, uh, the importance of what that marriage relationship represented and, and why it wasn't okay for them to be cohabitating. Neither of them had, had grown up in the church. And, um, it just seems cruel not to tell people these things. Obviously you want to do it gently. You want to tell, speak truth and love, but you have to speak the truth to be loving. Right. And of course that's the role of a pastor. Yes. And, uh, if you as a gay pastor cannot do that, I'm asking, can you truly function as a pastor for your people, especially your young people? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, especially with the young people who, you know, Gen Z and younger 21% of whom now, according to the most recent polls identify as some form of LGBTQ. Yes. 21%. It used to be 2%. Now it's yeah. 10%. Yeah. I think it's 7% nationwide for everyone. And then Gen Z and under it's 21%. And the numbers in the church, I need to go back and find that report again, but the numbers in the church are startling as well. Mm-hmm. Well, closing thoughts and remarks, Dr. Jones. It's been nice seeing you too. <laughs> <laughs> Did we fix everything? <laughs> well, um, being serious, of course, I'm hoping that this review can be useful uh, for all kinds of people who are facing these issues. And maybe what I'm saying is clear enough and valid enough to be helpful. So I just want to uh, thank you both for reading my review and making it known. And uh, I do trust that um, we'll get some good responses. And for those who don't know Joshua, I know we'll have links to it in the show notes um, on YouTube and in the different podcast services that people use, but where can people find the um, 
review online if they want to read it? The review is online at truthexchange.com. I believe the folks over at uh, Gospel Reformation Network will also be making a link to it. Of course, Dominic Aquila at the Aquila Report. There's another uh, a number of other websites who have also picked it up. But the best place to go is, is at www.truthexchange.com. And I'll just read this last line that Peter had in the review is that may we all speak clearly and boldly to Christians and non-Christians alike with grace, humility, clarity, and power following the example of the Apostle Paul. Thank you all.